From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And joining me from New York City by telephone for this edition is New York Times bestselling author Joe Drape, who has just come out with a book called The Saint Makers, which focuses in large part on the cause for Father Emil Capon. Joe, thank you so much for talking to me today. Taylor, thanks for having me. And Joe, you are a sports writer for the New York Times. Um, I guess my first question is, how does a sports writer end up writing a book on the making of saints in the Catholic Church? Well, I'm guilty as charged. I'm a sports writer. And the fact that I landed on this book shows that God works in mysterious ways. I was in Smith Center, Kansas in 2008. I moved my family down there, small town, to write about the high school football team that had won 67 games in a row, uh, mainly with two rules, never talking about winning or losing, and loved one another. And it's farmland, and that's where I first heard of Father Emil Capon. He was from that region. Uh, as your listeners know, he's a decorated military chaplain, but I, I'd never really heard the story about him or knew anything of him. But I saw this deep devotion that people had. And, you know, I saw the prayer cards and folks talked about, you know, his impact on the region and his daring dues in the war. And it just kind of stuck with me. And so I, I Googled it from time to time, didn't think anything of it. You know, fast forward seven times, seven years later, uh, editor who had worked on another book of mine said, have you ever thought about doing anything out of sports? And I was like, sure. And he goes, do you have an idea? And just out of my mouth shot Father Emil Capon. And, you know, I thought it was an opportunity to explore this kind of extraordinary biography, but I was parochial and Jesuit educated, and his cause was working its way through the system, and I really didn't understand how that worked. So I thought, okay, let's kind of make it a little detective story, and let's examine how you do become a saint. So that that's the path that sort of launched me, and then it took me down all kinds of uh, rabbit holes that I enjoyed learning about, you know, the Korean War, uh, my relationship with my own faith. So uh, that's why I say God works in mysterious ways. I, I didn't wake up one morning and say, I need to do this book, but it was planted there and it sort of took hold after eight years. So you took a deep dive into the process for uh, creating saints in the Catholic Church. Were there any surprises in your research? I was surprised by a lot. I was surprised by the evolution of the process. That you know, In the beginning, there's roughly 10,000 saints. And in the beginning, it was basically a voice vote, Taylor, that if somebody in my neighborhood of Manhattan in the Middle Ages said, Taylor, you're, is a cause for a saint, we could vote you in. Uh, and because of that process, a lot of the saints that we take for granted really didn't exist. And I say that because you know, St. Christopher is my confirmation name, our patron saint of travel. Uh, St. Christopher was a legend, and St. Christopher, via the legend, was a giant who lived on the side of a river and whose job was to carry people from one side to the other. And he lived 
like that until one day a young boy shows up and he carries him, he puts him on his shoulders, and he may, doesn't really, he struggles to get him across. He almost drowns and he collapses when he finally gets on the other side. And the young boy basically says, you know, I'm Jesus and you carried the heavens and the earth and my kingdom and, uh, and the future of Christianity on your shoulders. So that's how he became the patron saint of uh, travel. St. Jude, our, our saint of lost causes, is only mentioned once in the Bible and is attributed to 25 lines in some writings uh, that has nothing really to do with lost causes. So, you know, the, the rules were loosey-goosey in the beginning. And in the 1500s, the Pope at the time decided to, Pope Sixtus decided to put some controls in and to bring it back to the Vatican and bring it back to papal control. You know, that's probably why half the saints of the 10,000 are Italians. They have a home field advantage. And <laughs> in the words of a sports writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and so then, you know, they, they put it in to where you had to have some rigor applied to your cause, be it theological and historical. And at that point, it was four miracles. And so that pretty much tightened things up right then. Uh, it always has been a process that is, you know, I guess at the mercy of the whims and the, the needs of the people in charge. And, you know, fast forward to Pope John Paul II, he was the guy who looked at it and said, you know, this is an underused marketing tool. Uh, this is something we can make saints our superheroes and reach more people and meet them where they live. And, you know, we, much has been written about him, the fact he spoke a language, he was a gregarious sort, and he loved to travel. He went to more countries than any of his predecessors ever did, uh, you know, the most traveled pope at all. And he did 482 saints. And, you know, you'd hear stories that he would call over to the congregation for the causes of saints and say, I've got a trip planned for Ecuador. Who do we have in the pipeline? Because he saw that, you know, he could rally people if he gave them somebody who looked like them. And it, and it fits with the whole essence of what a saint is in the Catholic Church. And, you know, there's two qualities. The first is a life of virtue and inspiration and goodness that we can all aspire to. And I think what I learned during this, especially with Father Capon, is the second, is, to me, is the most important. It's relatability. Uh, people have to see a little bit of themselves in these saints that they pray to or that they admire or they want to model their lives after. And, you know, that's why the emphasis has been on moving saints around. There was a time when the church was falling behind in Latin America, so there was a rush of uh, Latin American saints named. Uh, now the priorities are Japan, Asia. I'm talking to New York Times bestselling author Joe Drape about his new book, The Saint Makers, that focuses heavily on Father Emil Capon, who, uh, whose cause for sainthood is now working its way through the Congregation for the Causes of Saints at the Vatican. Joe, you um, mentioned the uh, trend toward looking for saints that folks can relate to. 
uh, whether it be in Central America or here in uh, the United States or elsewhere. What is it about Father Emil Capon do you think folks in America, the United States, can relate to? Well, Father Capon was the son of a farmer from Kansas. He uh, definitely has heartland qualities. He grew up during the Depression. He worked dawn to dusk alongside his father. And, you know, he appeals to the Hartman and rural Americans. But he has this international appeal, as you well know, from military chaplains. And the military, you know, alone the military. I hear from a lot of people in the military. And, you know, in the military, Father Capone found his life's work. And he found it after sort of having a setback. And this is a guy who knew he wanted to be a priest. He used to put up saw horses and say fake masses, pretend masses, I should say, when he was six and seven years old. He was in the seminary by the time he was 14. Uh, he went back to his hometown and took over as the pastor, Pilsen, Kansas, which was a Czech community when he was 21. And he was a conscientious peach, uh, priest, and the kids loved him, but he had trouble commanding authority from the community because they all thought of him as Enos and Bessie's boy, the kid that was an altar boy, uh, the kid they used to see around town. And, you know, God closes the door and opens a window, and that window was a nearby army base, asked him to be an assistant chaplain. And he went over there and immediately bonded with the men. Many of them were his age. He was a physical guy. He went through all the training with them. Uh, he understood men of action because he was a man of action. And so he joined up full-time and uh, went off to World War II, earned a bronze star there. And I believe you, your listeners will know this better. I believe he's the most decorated military chaplain in, in history. Uh, and he went bronze star and still back home in Kansas, the bishop there saw something in him and sent him to Catholic University to finish out a degree in canon law and education. And he went there and they brought him one more time back to some parishes and Father Capon kept pushing, said, you know, I know my mission and my mission is to be with the men. And finally they relented and the Korean War breaks out and, you know, I learned a lot about a Korean War and it's called the Forgotten War for a reason. It was short. It was brutal. You know, my sense is World War II, it came on the heels of that, and people were sort of worn out. It didn't attack, uh, attract the attention that it did. But this was really this isolated corner of the world where the China decided to become or introduce themselves as a superpower. And, you know, Father Capon's story in Korea is just simply of one as a, a military war hero without carrying a gun. He was fearless. Uh, he was compassionate. He first was known just on the battlefield for going foxhole to foxhole during the thick of the heaviest fighting, carrying canteens, fruits, berries, whatever he had. He smoked a pipe, tobacco, and just checking in on his guys. You know, giving them a drink, giving them some food. And all he would say is, you know, you got time for a little prayer. And it, the two things that were immediately recognized by him was, one, his bravery, and two, he was ecumenical. He didn't care if you were Catholic or not. Uh, the Muslims who 
fought for Turkey loved him. Atheists loved him. Protestants, he was very close with his fellow chaplains and the doctors, two Jewish doctors there. So, uh, you know, that's where he first got noticed and is credited with saving hundreds of lives just on the battlefields by refusing to leave the wounded behind. And then, you know, within months, 25,000 Chinese troops descended on his battalion. There were six to 7,000 to begin with. Uh, they fought for days. They couldn't hold them off. They were down to several hundred men. And the Korean, the Chinese soldiers marched on them, and they had to surrender. And at this moment of surrender where Father Kapan was, there was a wounded soldier, Herb Miller, who he had baptized on the shores of Japan before they went to battle. He was all shot up. The Chinese soldier was about ready to execute him. Uh, Father Kapan ran over, knocked the rifle away, and picked up Sergeant Miller and put him on his back. And that initial act of defiance really rallied the, his men around him, who already liked him and already knew he was a leader. And, you know, he basically said, we're not leaving the wounded because they're not going to make it. So down the line, these hundreds of guys picked up whoever couldn't move on, and they start this long, you know, weeks-long march, 60 miles to in sub-zero temperatures through the mountains to what was going to be known as Camp Number 5. And, you know, that's where he basically, as other soldiers joined from other captors, other prisoners, I should say, were joined the, the march and the, to the death camp, he was clearly looked up to as a leader, a guy who was going to keep him going. And so when he gets to the camp, he does what he can to keep hopes up of the boys, and he's credited with saving thousands in camp number five. I mean, there are Pentagon experts who say they lost the least prisoners of all the Korean war camps, and they, they lost, don't get me wrong, they lost thousands, and there's hundreds of bodies that have never been recovered, but he just put it in his portfolio that he was going to be the guy of hope, and if that meant going out and stealing food from the guards, he did it on these nighttime missions. Uh, he used all his Kansas know-how. He could build tools. He could build latrines. Uh, he could build pots and pans and stoves. Uh, he could forge. He'd go out and find food. And, you know, they were, they were trying to starve these guys, Taylor. I mean, their daily ration was a fistful of millet, which is basically birdseed. So they went out, he did that, he would trade his tobacco for material from the guards, he would, uh, you know, he made sure everybody had a proper burial, and people were dying at alarming rates, and he would not only go out, dig the hole, he would take their clothes to repurpose them for blankets or sweaters or something for the survivors, and we would give them a dignified send-off. So. You know, his his legend, and it was a flesh-and-blood legend, just grew by the day there. I'm talking to New York Times bestselling author Joe Drape about his new book, The Saint Makers, which focuses heavily on uh, the cause of Father Emil Capon. Um, and uh, Joe, uh, uh, fast forward, and uh, let's talk about... Uh, 
How long was Father Capon in this prisoner of war camp, and how did he die? Father Capon was there, people think, alive there for 18 months. He was 35 years old when he died, they think in 1951. Uh, Father Capon just became a thorn of the side of Commander Sun, who was the Chinese commandant of the prison. They were looking for reasons to get rid of him because he carried this, this fearlessness throughout the camp. I mean, he would go to the enlisted men's side, he'd sneak out, and they were afraid of him. They never really stopped him. He just walked with so much authority and sort of this otherworldliness. In fact, one of the guys who's most uh, responsible for him being awarded the Medal of Honor in 2013 is Mike Dow. And Mike Dow wrote a story in 1953 in the Saturday Evening Post. He you know, served in the prison with him, and he said that it didn't matter where we were, if we were in mud and could barely stand up, Father Capon turned every patch into a cathedral. And this is the, the presence he had. So they wanted to get rid of him. And, you know, guys were losing 100 pounds. They were barely eating. They would spend hours picking lice off each other. It was just some of the most unimaginable conditions ever. And uh, Father Capon it had finally worn him down. He had had an eye injury. He was wearing an eye patch. He had broken his hip. He was emaciated, 100 pounds. Uh, you know, it, the, the, the weight of the whole experience was on him. And Commander Sun saw this and saw this was the opportunity to separate him from the troops and basically get rid of him. And there was an old Buddhist monastery up on the hill that everybody called the Death House. And he sent a detail down to the officers' quarters where they lived like 32, 18-square-foot uh, hut. I mean, it was barely livable. And they went to get Father Capon. And people poured out of all their quarters and resisted and said, no, you're not taking you know, he could barely move at this point. He was not barely ambulatory. And a riot almost broke out. They thought people were going to get shot. And Father Capon said, no, guys, I want to go. This is what I've worked all my life for, is to go to heaven and be with my father. Uh, this is going to be a happy day for me. And, you know, they're stunned, but they're used to him telling him the truth and I mean you know the qualities he had Taylor was he saw the goodness in everyone and he exuded goodness and he met people at their level and as uh, uh, four of them pick him up on a stretcher they start to take him out he stops at every Chinese soldier makes a sign of the cross says you know forgive them and then he asks them forgive me so you know he's asking these guys who are basically sent him to the death for forgiveness. And, you know, he goes to the death house. They've never found his body. He never came out. And that's how he died. Now, the impact he had even post-death was remarkable. And how remarkable it was, was, you know, guys prayed, guys gathered, guys continued to keep the spirit up of Father Capon, the defiance, the hope. And it happened... In 1953, when the war was declared over and the prisoners were released, the main thrust of Camp Number 5 came out carrying the cross 
behind a Jewish fighter pilot named Gerald Fink, who had never met Father Capone. He had gotten captured after Father Capone had died. But he had spent months building a crucifix uh, from barbed wire, from wood, from found materials, and making a likeness on that crucifix that looked like Father Capone. And they came marching out behind him, and they went, you know, those were the days newspaper men were around, the wire services, and they went straight, and they said, you know, we got to tell you about this extraordinary man. And in Major Fink's uh, words, he was like, he was a man of, with a will of iron, but a soul of velvet. And, you know, this is the impact he had on the guy. Wow, what a touching story. Joe, I happened to have the privilege of being in the East Room at the White House back in 2013 when President Obama awarded the, the Medal of Honor posthumously to uh, uh, Father Capone. He gave a, uh, a very eloquent uh, eulogy. Uh, and Herb Miller, the, uh, the soldier that you mentioned that he had picked up and carried on his back during that long walk in the cold of winter, was present at the uh, ceremony. It was a touching moment. So let me ask you this, Joe, um, uh, an incredible story. Uh, what does the Vatican require, the, the Holy See, what does the, the Congregation for the Cause of Saints require for someone of Father Capon's stature, a man of, of his deep faith, to become a saint? You know, it's pretty cut and dry, but it takes time. And just to put it in context to your listeners, the average time elapsed between a candidate's death and his canonization is 181 years. This usually doesn't happen fast. The first step is opening a cause, being recognized as a servant of God. That's where he is. Uh, the second is being venerated, and he was about ready to be venerated. And to get to veneration, you, get, you build a case basically, and Father John Hotze in Wichita, with a lot of help of volunteers, amassed 8,762 pages of documents, testimony, writings on Father Capon. Uh, he then turns it over to a canon lawyer in Rome, and that canon lawyer, Dr. Andres Ambrosi, puts together in a narrative, and then becomes sort of, the postulator's the, the term, but in layman's term, especially you're down there in D.C., you're the lobbyist, you're the arm twister, you're the glad hander, <laughs> you're, working, you're working the congregation for the cause of the saints on behalf of your candidate. And that is a two-part system. The, a panel of expert historians come examine, make sure his life's in context, that he did the things he did, and then a panel of theologians are gathered and look at did he lead a life of virtue or she virtue? Uh, you know, put you to the virtue test, and if you were theologically set. Now, you know, unfortunately, he was going to be venerated in March, and right when they were gathering to do that, the pandemic broke out, and it was you know the next day it was Pope Francis out at St. Peter's Square giving that speech to the world of not to panic. So, with, with no one yeah. present, right? That was a famous picture. Yeah. Right, right, standing out there. And uh, that indeed, he's going to hit that point. And then really where the rubber hits the road in St. Megan is the miracles. I mean, the miracles, 
followed, John Paul moved those instead of four down to two. And a miracle in uh, the eyes of the church is this uh, unexplained recovery from an illness or near death or death that you know cannot be explained by medicine or science. That's part one. Part two is that recovery happened because your friends, your family, your community were praying to the candidate for sainthood, in this case, Father Capon, to intercede and to turn to God and ask him to save who, because you are there in heaven. Nobody doubts he is there in heaven. But to ask God to intercede and it demonstrates you have pull with God. And, you know, that's that's how it is. Now, there's one saint, one miracle gets you beatified, okay? In, in Father Capon's case, they have two cases, possibly a third that they think are strong enough to take to the next test. And if uh, they do accept uh, that thing, that those miracles as valid, then the clock starts over again. So the second, he will be beatified, okay? That's put you on the doorstep of sainthood. But right then, the clock starts over again. The next miracle has not happened yet. In the couple of minutes we have left, uh, can you uh, sum up in a nutshell what those two or three miracles were? Uh, both involved young athletes, uh, all three of those young athletes. The two prominent ones is a young pole vaulter, college pole vaulter, misses the mat, a guy named Chase Keir. Uh, his skull is literally cracked in half. She's medevaced to the nearest metropolitan hospital and pretty much his parents say, are told uh, he's not going to recover from this and if he does recover he's going to be in a vegetative state. They come from a sound parish uh, who was already paying, praying to Father Capon on a prayer line. Big family 250 people in the lobby of the hospital praying to Father Capon. Every day at church they're praying. After 37 days he miraculously comes to and with barely any uh, backlash or long-lasting deals. In fact, he's now getting married in the spring and works in aviation in Wichita. And the second, again, is a young athlete, a young girl who was 12 years old playing youth soccer who just collapsed one day on the field, uh, started coughing up blood. They take her to the emergency room. They don't even know what she has for 87 days. And she's on a ventilator. She's on a kidney machine. They have no hope. So they basically, to put her, to let her die peacefully, they unplug her off everything. And all of a sudden, her eyes open, and she recognizes her parents, and she starts talking within a couple of days. So those are the two miracles. The same thing. People prayed to Father Caban. I've been talking to Joe Drape, a New York Times bestselling author, out with a new book, The Saint Makers, which uh, focuses largely on the cause of Father Emile Capon, uh, a chaplain hero of uh, the Korean War. Uh, Joe, can your book be found on Amazon? It can be found on Amazon. It can be found at bookstores everywhere. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say this, Taylor. I was finishing this. I didn't intend this book to come out in the midst of a pandemic, but I f was finishing it right in the teeth of it here in New York when people were dying, you know, a thousand a day and nobody knew what was going on. It was terrifying. And it was just uh, 
great deal of comfort to spend a little time with Father Capon each day in the midst of all that. And, you know, if there's ever a, a guy for a time who knows misery, who knows division, who knows illness, uh, Father Capon is it. Joe Drake, Drape, thank you so much. The title of the book is The Saint Makers by Hachette Books, available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Catholic Military Life is a production of the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, the AMS. The AMS was established by Pope St. John Paul II in 1985. Her mission, to provide for the free exercise of Catholic faith in the U.S. military, VA medical centers, the civilian workforce employed by the federal government beyond U.S. borders, and the families of these populations, making the AMS the church's only truly global archdiocese. Among pastoral services provided by the AMS under Archbishop Timothy Brolio, celebration of the sacrament, endorsement of chaplains, evangelization and religious education, sacramental record-keeping, a thriving seminarian program, pastoral visitation by the bishops to military installations worldwide, and more. All told, 1.8 million Catholics all over the world depend on the AMS based in Washington, D.C. to meet their spiritual and sacramental needs. The AMS receives no government funding. She depends entirely on private gifts for survival. For more information, visit millarch.org.